Welcome to Karine and Rose's EdTech Roundup, a new series of the EdTech podcast designed for educators, learners, parents, and anybody who wants to know how to get the best from technology when learning or teaching. In each episode in this series, we will spend about 30 minutes looking at what is in the news that is relevant to EdTech. We may have a chat with someone from the world of EdTech or discuss what you've been telling us, or sometimes we will do a product review. Towards the end of the podcast, we will give you our topical top tech tip for the coming week and discuss some of the questions that you have sent in to us. So who are we? Well, I'm Karen George and I'm the Chief Education Advisor for Educate Ventures. Prior to that, I was a head teacher for more than 20 years, a strategic lead for an authority and more importantly, a parent of two children. I teach, train, write and speak nationally and internationally on educational leadership, parental engagement, and the use of technology in teaching and learning. And I'm Rose, Rose Luckin, a professor at University College London and an entrepreneur with decades of experience in the world of educational technology and artificial intelligence, a teacher, a parent, and a grandparent. So what's in the news, Rose? I was particularly interested today, actually, Uh, to see more about the online safety bill. So that's something here in the United Kingdom that's been debated for quite a while in Parliament. And there's been some changes to it uh, overnight almost to try and ensure that the way the online safety bill is drafted will enable our regulator here in the UK, Ofcom, to have real teeth to try and take to task some of the companies that are not really regulating the kind of content that they allow on their platforms. So the online safety bill has been repeatedly altered during its passage through Parliament, but basically it will oblige managers of sites that host user-generated content, so like social media sites, to take proportionate measures to stop children seeing harmful material. That might be through age verification or taking content down or enabling parental controls. As the bill had been written, it would only make managers criminally liable for failing to give information to the media regulator, i.e. Ofcom. And companies who were failing um, to to meet or comply with their legal duties would be fined up to 10% of their global revenue. But that wasn't felt to be enough of a deterrent. And so due to various members of parliament in the UK across both the Conservative and the Labour Party putting pressure on the government. They're now rewriting part of this legislation before it goes to our second house, the House of Lords, to ensure that it has the power to basically mean that tech bosses would be faced with jail sentences for failing to protect children. I think uh, Labour's Shadow Culture Secretary Lucy Powell said it nicely when she said that Ofcom needed sufficient teeth that Silicon Valley bosses would sit up and take notice. So it's something that's very relevant to the United Kingdom for trying to protect children from harmful material, but it's also significant in other parts of the world because there are companies all over the world that are in control of the, the tech companies that are at the heart of the problem that this bill is trying to solve. What about you? What's caught your attention, Karine? Well, I'm sure we'll hear more about uh, the passage um, the passage of that bill. But what's caught my attention is the absence rates. It's a topic that we keep talking about again and again, but it's been increasing. There's been a really worrying tr- trend that's emerged regarding absence in school. 
School leaders have identified that parents seem more reluctant to send their children to school and their efforts to encourage them are meeting resistance. Now, there's figures that have been released from the Department of Education that supports these findings with sustained increases in both authorised and unauthorised absences. The data identified that more than 9% of classroom time in the first half of the latest academic year for secondary school pupils was missed. Now, this is up from 5.4% in the five years between 2014 and 2019. Unauthorised absences rose by a staggering 70%. Such is the concern that MPs on the Parliamentary Education Select Committee are to hold an inquiry next month into these growing rates of persistent absence while discussing the possible causes. I mean, that's a huge 70% increase, is staggering, as you say. And I find that really interesting, Karine, particularly with regard to an interview that I heard on the radio this morning, and today's the 17th of January, so I heard Gillian Keegan, our Secretary of State for Education, reacting to the news that one of the teaching unions has voted for strike action. And she said that children suffered enough in the pandemic and we need to keep them in school. Now, that statement seems quite at odds to what you're reporting here. If we need to keep children in school, then we really should be concerned about these absences, both authorised and unauthorised. So what are some of the reasons why these absences have increased, do you think? Yes, there was a noticeable lack of discussion on these issues. But I think there are a number of reasons why absences could have increased since the pandemic. Parents have become more concerned about their children contracting diseases at school like COVID and obviously since December strep A, especially um, with it being more difficult to get doctors or hospital appointments. So and parents worried about having to have more time off work with their children. Since COVID, there's been an increase in the issues related to mental health uh, and with the resilience of parents and children under much greater pressure. You know, one, for the families, the cost of living has impacted on them, and two, for students having experienced some of them crippling anxiety and loss of social and academic confidence. We've also seen a shift in the number of people who are working from home, and some of these parents feel their children do much better at home than they did at school, and so they re-envisage education for their children and their working lives. But what we mustn't forget is that there's also been a number of children for whom attendance in school has always been a challenge through having high anxiety and mental well-being, for example. And the parents of these children never imagined when their children were born that they would not fit into the educational system. Budget cuts, the loss of support staff, an overly academic curriculum, problems in the special needs and disability system, difficulty with accessing mental support have all compounded pre-existing problems with behaviour and attendance for these children and their parents. And it's put them at odds with the current system in place. These are the outliers where teachers find themselves torn between policy and the need to support these families. Now, it's worth highlighting here that this is a subject of a book with 50 different contributors bringing their expertise to bear. It's a dip in, dip out book for busy school um, professionals who want to know more. It's entitled Square Pegs, Inclusivity, Compassion and Fitting In. And it provides a guide for schools. It's authored by the lovely Ellie Costello and Fran Morgan, and it's due to be released on February the 2nd. So look out for that book. It's going to be a useful resource. One of the key questions for me here is when I hear about children not being present in school, and and I understand some of the reasons why school isn't always the best option for every child. But I'm interested in in how we can use technology to help 
ensure that that everybody, wherever they're learning, gets the best possible experience that they can. And I think there's some things that might be useful to listeners of the pod in our COVID research report that we published a couple of years ago with the Cambridge University Press. Uh, we'll put a link to that report in the text about this podcast, but it does have some you know, tips for what you might do if you're trying to ensure that you're developing online learning or hybrid learning where you use a mix of face-to-face and online in a way that it's engaging. Things like realizing that developing an online course is a team effort. So get together, you know, groups of parents can get together if they're educating their children at home, for example. You know, engagement and presence are are important and peer engagement is really important. So trying to build community through the online experience can be really valuable and combining both synchronous and asynchronous modes of learning and a variety of media, so video, games, whatever you can get your hands on, really. Um, But to give that variety, along with plenty of feedback, are really important for success in this area. And finally, I think picking up on what you've already highlighted, Karine, around mental health and well-being being a really serious concern at the moment. I think it's important to recognise that there are stressors that are different in terms of what's going on when somebody is learning in a remote context rather than on a face-to-face basis. You know, loneliness, fatigue and overload can really have a negative impact. So there's lots of positives that can come with using technology to create community and connect people. But we do need to be very conscious that it is different and and the the benefits and and the challenges are different to the situation when we're learning face-to-face. But what's our key topic for discussion today, Karine? So today we're going to focus on AI. I'm not sure if any of our listeners have missed all the hype around the chatter about chat GPT. So to start with, perhaps, Rose, you could just give us an overview and explain to our listeners a little bit about what chat GPT is. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Chat GPT is everywhere, it seems at the moment. I keep reading headline after headline and hearing it on the radio all the time. But what is it? Well, ChatGPT is a form of artificial intelligence or AI. It's a type of AI that's called generative AI. And by that, we just mean that the technology generates an output. And by that, I'm differentiating between transcribing. So if I dictate into my audio notes and it puts the text in the note, that's just transcription. But ChatGPT is actually generating new text. So you put in a text, put in a question or put in some text and it will create some new writing. But actually, the technology at the heart of ChatGPT has been around for a couple of years. It's something called GPT-3, which actually was launched a couple of years ago by a company called OpenAI, invested in famously by Elon Musk. And GPT-3 stands for generative pre-trained transformer version three, which sounds very Star Wars, but basically it's a form of machine learning artificial intelligence that learns or has been trained and continues to learn. And now this technology is super sophisticated, I have to say. It's like a really clever autocomplete function, to be honest, and it is incredibly powerful because it has been trained on, wait for this, 45 terabytes of text data. Now, just to put that in context, the entire English language version of Wikipedia 
accounts for only 0.6% of its entire data set, so under 1%. It is truly huge. And that is part of the power. So the technology that underpins ChatGPT has been around for a while. But I think the fuss is happening now because it's been made freely available, it's scaled, it's got an easy-to-use interface. And because it has been trained on this massive data set, it is actually quite impressive. But a really important thing to remember is ChatGPT does not understand a word it produces. It has no understanding at all. And it does get things wrong. It's not perfect. It's not foolproof. So it's really interesting and really clever, but. It's really useful, Rose. But for our listeners, can you just say a little bit more about some of the other types of generative AI so that we can think about how they might impact on education too? Yeah, that's a good point, Karen, because it's not just that this generative AI can generate text. It can also generate images and it can generate movies, videos. So basically, we have text to image where you type in a description of the image that you want to be created and the AI will create it. And again, the same company that's produced ChatGPT, OpenAI, has produced something called Dolly, which can be used for creating images from textual description. And we've also got even smarter generative AI that can take text and images and create video from it. And you know, the company behind Facebook, Meta, has a version of this called Unveiled. Google have a couple of versions of this. And, it, you know, these technologies are really quite incredible. Um, they're not all publicly available in quite the easy to use way that ChatGPT is. So Dooley is available publicly, um, and that's the system that can produce images from text. But not all of the systems that produce video from text are available. Some of them are on a, on a freemium model and some of them aren't yet. There's a little bit of concern about making all of these technologies widely available on a free to use basis. But, you know, it's not going to be long before they're, they're all out there encouraging people to use them. And then then, of course, we'll all start to be charged for using them, because let's not forget this is a money making business. But Rose, isn't this type of AI extremely expensive? Yes, to build, it, it is expensive, although the prices are dropping um, because once we get to know how to do it, it does become easier to do. However, you know, the money that's being invested in this is phenomenal. And I think it's important to reflect on this because it's not going away. You know, three years ago, Microsoft put in $1 billion to open AI, for example. And I noticed in the Financial Times this morning, it was reported that they're now considering putting in another $10 billion of investment into open AI because they see it as the defining deal in AI for, for, for this era. So there is going to be a huge amount of money put into developing these technologies. They are not going away and they will, without question, impact on education. Uh, we can't hide. We, we have to work out how to get the benefits from these technologies and avoid the disadvantages. But I think, Karin, haven't you been out and about this week talking to a number of teachers and head teachers about artificial intelligence? And I'm just wondering what you've learned from them that, that can contribute to our thinking on this subject. 
looking at what's happened with chat um, GPT, I was very interested in finding out a little bit more about um, what teachers and head teachers thought about AI, because it is exploding around us. It's been there and it's exploding and only going to get bigger. And particularly if our job, and I know this is my mantra that I go on and on about, you know, our job is to prepare our children for their future, not for our pasts. So I wanted to know what they knew about it, what they were doing about it. And I asked them questions like, have you ever considered using AI in your teaching? Did they feel they had enough knowledge to utilize its potential? I wanted to know whether AI was encouraged in the classroom, whether it was supported by their school leadership, the academy or the authority, and what professional development had been available to them on this area so far. Now, Overwhelmingly, I have to say there was a lack of understanding in the knowledge about the potential of AI in education among teachers. This can make it very difficult to fully appreciate the benefits of using AI in the classroom. The teachers I spoke to didn't really see the relevance to their specific subject or class or the value in using AI to inform their teaching practices. They didn't understand how it could be applied in the classroom and so they didn't see it as a priority. Another factor that really overshadowed um, the discussions that I had with them about the use of AI in educational practice was the lack of funding and resources with real financial budget constraints high on the agenda. You know, people didn't have the budget to invest in the necessary technology or training to implement AI in teaching. In fact, training on anything was in short supply. And teachers said the money for training was more likely to be spent on preparation for forthcoming Ofsteads or on understanding new government directives. Oh, hugely frustrating. How many times have we heard this over the years? And, you know, that COVID alone gave us a little glimpse uh, into the issues that we faced when schools didn't have enough money for infrastructure and technology. And we're going to face more of these changes in the future. Um, you know, just because COVID's done, we've already seen strep A um, keeping children away. We've talked about absences. So we've got to rethink this. In addition, one of their big concerns was how to comply with the legal issues, which seemed like a minefield with data privacy and security. And, you know, Ofsted is looking at more about safety in schools and that worries them. So and finally, they highlighted that students would spend even more time with technology than with human interaction, which was a big worry for not just them, uh, but for parents who'd highlighted it to them. Now, interestingly, these comments were not surprising really. And um, one of the reasons that we wanted to have this episode dedicated to AI, because AI isn't getting the traction that it deserves. However, chat GPT has got everyone's attention, and it might be the lever that could very well focus educators to at least start digging in and thinking about AI and the potential of it, and thinking about something we must do always when anything new comes along, weigh the pros and the cons you know needed to utilize anything yeah it's a big thing isn't it it's very hard to to get people who are already really short of time to engage with something that feels like it's irrelevant and it's complex and then it's hard to fathom but really we do have to get people to think about artificial intelligence and to try and understand it in a way that helps them to get the benefits and and to leverage it for good and helps them to help other people to understand it a bit better. So ChatGPT could be doing us a favor by really getting everybody to think about AI. But what do you think the implications of technologies like ChatGPT are for education? Well, if I focus on ChatGPT, it could be a game changer in the realization and the understanding of the power of AI as 
If you have a go at the bot like we've recommended in our previous podcast, it's undeniably impressive with its ability to answer questions, generate paragraphs of coherent argument or narrative in seconds. So any student could use it in an instant without spending time scratching their heads to figure out how to write a speech on any ever, uh, any given topic, to do their homework if they're asked to write, write a news report. They could easily generate answers to exam practice questions, write poems in the style of famous poems, and so much more. Now, are you telling me that students on the whole wouldn't use that? You know, it's just like we will see, you know, in the past, students changing the calculator to answer their maths or the internet to find facts or spell check to do spelling. There's change afoot. And there are going to be a lot of people that are using this as a shortcut. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and thinking beyond just the text that we have with ChatGPT, if we think about image generations such as that from Dawley, you know, it could be fun for students to interact in an art class as they explore different artists' style. Um, for example, the models which can generate images in the style of a specific artist, and they might enjoy learning about them in an IT lesson, generating images from text and, and looking at how the way you write that text leads to different images being generated and learning actually how you write the best text to get the kind of image that you want. So I can see lots of learning opportunities there. Also, I think with video generation, I, I can imagine students having some fun generating um, video, possibly having themselves or friends as avatars, or maybe even a celebrity or a favorite teacher. There could be some fun to be had here and engaging learners through technology is important. Of course, there are some negatives and you know we will come to those, of course, because it's important that we consider them. But yeah, I think there are ways in which these technologies can be used beneficially. So you're right, Rose, and change in education is constant. In fact, it's so constant, constant, we can rely on it. But teachers are a resilient bunch and understand their own ability for growth and learning. We saw that during COVID. Certainly, it's going to challenge the approach we have to our current curriculum. Students will question the purpose of certain approaches when they can produce the responses at a touch of a button for certain homework questions, for example. But is that a bad thing with so much memorization still required on our current curriculum? Now, the art for me of a professional teacher is not one where students are required just to synthesize information, but where teachers can support their students to gauge a deeper understanding about a text, for example. You know, why do students need to write or do research when chat GPT and Google can do it for them? We could flip the learning by asking students to use chat GPT for assignments and ask them to critically review the feedback provided on their writing so they can determine what's more helpful to their own learning. A culture of peer critique could be built, which is something that's been talked about a lot, where students could analyse, provide feedback on, or even grade the text produced by chat GPT uh, as a way to prepare for peer review of their work, uh, classwork, which in turn will support greater collaboration. Another area that's been talked a lot about, you know, the benefits of collaboration in learning. Or teachers could use chat GPT to explain a concept for a five-year-old, a college student or an expert, and then ask the students to analyse the difference in the way chat GPT uses language. Now, would that be such a bad thing? Would we just focus on synthesising and editing other people's work? Or is the craft of writing a mechanism to sort our own unique ideas and thoughts about the world? We obviously want a balance. 
because our focus should be on intrinsic motivation, you know, about the learning goals we set rather than the ex- extrinsic ones about, you know, passing, just passing exams. I love those ideas. And I think in particular, what you've said about deep understanding is extremely important. As I said, when I was talking about ChatGPT, ChatGPT doesn't understand anything that it writes. It's not capable of understanding, but as humans, we are. So why not use it as a tool to increase the depth of understanding that we as humans have? Over the years, there have been numerous studies that have shown how often even students at universities have quite a poor understanding of where knowledge comes from, what it is, what good evidence is on which they can base whether they believe something to be true or not. I could see ChatGPT as a really useful tool for helping us to engage students in getting a deeper and deeper understanding of a subject by keep probing ChatGPT, seeing where the gaps are, seeing where the differences are, challenging each other to get the best answer from it, you know, and remembering that it can be wrong and looking for the errors that it produces. I could see that as a possibility. However, I do worry that it could be a tool for dumbing down, whereby we people end up using it to produce their text and they don't really look to improve what it produces. They take what it produces on face value. And I think that could be quite damaging. I think the possibilities that the discussions that ChatGPT has prompted about changing our assessment system are brilliant. I can remember saying 10 years ago, we needed to move away the, from the essay as, as, the, as a hugely um, common assessment metric that we need to find new methods. So actually, it's amazing it takes ChatGPT to, to actually get that challenge to the forefront of everybody's mind. I think we do need to, to rethink our assessment system. And if ChatGPT generates those conversations, well, I'm really pleased about that. I think there were also some problems, as always, with artificial intelligence when it comes to ethics and data, which we will revisit in a future episode of this pod. But let's just reflect on the title of our pod for today, which is ChatGPT, Friend or Foe to Education. But also that when we first decided to do a pod about AI, it was actually because we wanted to encourage people to get involved and we wanted them to know more about artificial intelligence. In fact, we wanted them to want to know more about artificial intelligence because it's part of our world and it has significant implications for education. And we were doing this originally through talking about our book, AI for School Teachers, that came out last year, published by Routledge, and the fact that we've got some free audio chapters from that book coming out. The first one will be released at the same time as this pod. So it's interesting that ChatGPT has kind of done our job for us in that it's captured the headlines. And I think it has woken up many people in education to the fact that actually they can't really ignore artificial intelligence anymore, that they perhaps do need to start thinking about it. And I hope that we can help them in that enterprise. What do you think, Karine? Do you think ChatGPT has done us a favour? Is it a friend or is it a foe? I think at this point it is a friend because it is unlocking people's interest in artificial intelligence and it's going to prompt people whether they like it or not, because if they don't, we're going to see mass plagiarization of all sorts of things to look at it. 
And for those really creative teachers, we're going to see them using it in ways that accelerate learning. And I can see ways forward that with ChatGPT, we can actually make uh, learning more autonomous, uh, build communities, as I've said before, um, of children who can collaborate on pieces that ChatGTP um, produces. So I think at the moment it's a friend. What we've got to make sure is it doesn't become a foe by making we make a, by gaining the understanding about artificial intelligence, its strengths and its weaknesses, and how we can use it. So as we conclude this section of the podcast and our discussion, what are the questions we should ask ourselves? Well, I think there's one key one, Rose, and that's. As professional educators, we should think, should we wait for training or be responsible for developing our own professional capital in this area? Absolutely. I think we have to think about developing our own professional capacity in this area. Um, And I think with a bit of luck, podcasts like this and lots of the other conversations that are going on at the moment about ChatGPT can be super helpful in in getting people engaged and helping them to build their understanding. So should we turn to our topical top tech tips? Yes, indeed. And I'd like to leave you with a quote. I'd like to leave our listeners with a quote here. And it's a quote by Charles Ledbetter. And the quote says, we need to learn to become more human as society becomes more technological, to become more creative as work becomes more programmed to be more empathetic as systems become more pervasive. We've got to take the initiative rather than meekly follow instructions. That's really important to work together rather than go it alone. We are not robots and we need to excel at being human. And being human, when I look at that quote, means accepting change and questioning the results that we see and using our own cognition to make informed decisions. So you could all make a start by actually starting to develop your own professional capital and digging into the area of AI and trying chat GPT or turning to our audio recording, which may be of uh, you know a great starting point for everybody. Yeah. And we'll put a link to that audio recording in the uh, text along with this podcast. Thanks, Karine. I love that quote. I used to have a little badge that I wore that said, I love AI. And I'd always say to people, yes, and I love humans more. Um, And I think it is really important to remember that humans are much more important than robots. And we're not robots. Humans are are way more sophisticated and interesting. And and we need to keep it that way. But my topical top tech tip uh, for this week is actually related to the online safety bill and how parents can best work with their children. And indeed, teachers can best work with children to protect them because it's really important that we have this bill, that we're having this legislation in order to try and make the world of the online, of social media, of all that content that's out there a safer place for children. But I'd like to reflect back on some of the work done by Richard Collata, who's the chief executive of ISTE, which is the International Society for Technology and Education. And he was a guest on the very first EdTech podcast that I hosted. And he's written a book. And in that book, he talks about the need to talk to children about why they need to be careful online, why they need to limit their screen time. So rather than just having regulation, but actually sit down and chat to 
children about why these things are necessary. And I know, Karine, you and I have talked before about how even with very young children, you can engage them in quite complex concepts in this space. You certainly can. And it's most important to do that because they're the systems of the future and their parents should actively involve them having these open and honest um, conversations so that children can stay safe as they grow older and know what the markers are to look for. I mean, in terms of young children, we can start very, very young with toys by asking them to think about if they have a toy, who would they lend it to? And the toy represents the data. Why wouldn't they lend it to somebody? What would be the questions they ask if they're going to lend their toy? And all of these are starting to think about reasons and rationale for not sharing your data when you apply it to data. So we can start very, very young to talk about data and get children thinking about and problem solving and asking the appropriate questions. Yeah, and data and data sharing are fundamental to part of what it means to be safe online. Well, we're coming to the end of the pod, but I think we've got time for a listener question. So um, I think we've had a question from Kate. Karine, can you tell us a bit more? Yes, Kate was recently a secondary school teacher. She works for High S Inspector in Hampshire, but she's been passionate about the use of EdTech to enhance learning. And she was an Apple educator and led the Demonstrator School programme. And she told me that it wasn't a question that she was asking us, but it was a question she was most asked as a, as a teacher and a leader of the demonstrator programme. And the question from lots of teachers to her was, how can you see through the media hype around any tech product to get real factual information? Now, I thought about that. And in my view, there are a number of ways. One of the ways is to get accurate information about a product is to ignore the endorsements by celebrities or, or people who speak the loudest about um, technology. You can't take the word of just another professional who may have a good following on social media because you have to look at it being used in your school with your stakeholders. So you may be looking at totally different parameters of what you're, the problem you're trying to solve. If it doesn't work for your children, it's no good whoever endorses it. And I know that Kate, that's that's one of her mantras. Now, what so what can you do instead? Well, you can read reviews and analyze from reputable technology publications or websites like Edge Surge or EdTech Times or the EdTech Education Magazine that covers products and reviews. Now, these are typically written by experts who have thoroughly tested and evaluated the product. And they can provide detailed information about its features. So you can look at the features that are important to your school in your context, the performance and the value added. Additionally, you can look for independent reviews or user reviews to give you a sense of the real experience of the product. And you can also research the company's official website and read the technical specifications. But again, lots of teachers don't have time to do that. So one of the things that you can do is go on to YouTube to watch vid um, videos of people using it in situ. These are the people who are trialing it firsthand and sh sometimes showcasing how it can be used and demonstrated in schools. All of this is going to start to build a picture for you about how useful that product might be in your context for the problem you're trying to solve. There's one really important thing I would add to that. I agree with what you said, Karine, but I think it's also really important to collect data as you're doing this that you can then share with colleagues so that they can benefit from your experience too 
And in a future pod, we will talk a little bit more about what it means to collect data and how you can learn from that data in a way that's manageable for very, very busy teachers. Thank you, Rose. Well, I think that's it for today. Uh, And thank you to Kate for, for giving us some insights into questions she was asked. And many thanks to our audience for joining us. We hope you found this interesting, enjoyable, and most importantly, helpful to you and that you'll listen to the next episode um, where we talk about the trends and the current thinking about edtech. So please do send us your questions. They can be about any aspect of educational technology for any age of learner and send them to hello at educateventures.com. Brilliant. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking forward to the next episode and we haven't even recorded it yet. Thanks for listening.